Every year, on her birthday, Laura gets a letter from a stranger. That stranger claims to know the whereabouts of her missing friend, Bobby. I love you, Laura. But there's a catch. He'll only tell her what he knows in exchange for something personal. So begins Laura's sordid relationship with her new pen pal, built on a foundation of quid pro quo. Something for something. Her quest for closure will push her to bizarre acts of humiliation and harm. Yet no matter how hard she tries, she cannot escape her correspondence demands. The letters keep coming, and as time passes, they have a profound effect on Laura. For she knows, deep down, that she can't trust a single word, he says. No Sleep Podcast presents Dear Laura by Gemma Amore Chapter 4 Never far from my thoughts, you or Bobby. There are so many things I want to say to you, Laura, but I am afraid to, out of fear for what might happen to me. You know, I could get into a lot of trouble for writing letters to a 15-year-old girl. Society judges people with feelings like mine, you see. They judge me unfairly. What do they know? It won't stop me from needing you. I'm not keen on the way you wear your hair these days, Laura. And the makeup is not good on you either, if you don't mind me saying so. You're a beautiful young girl. You don't need makeup. Don't try to look older than you are. That's my advice. These are the best years of your life. Don't wish them away. Are we learning to trust each other yet, do you think? I keep your gift close by at all times, even when I sleep. Your panties live under my pillow, where they belong. I can smell you on them. I wasn't lying with my earlier letters, Laura, or playing cruel tricks. I know you are still looking for Bobby. I want to give you another clue, but you have to pay me first. That's how we make things fair. So I want your used toothbrush wrapped up and left for me in the usual place. Yours with respect and happy birthday, X. The letters came like clockwork after that. Once a year, on Laura's birthday. Clues piled up alongside the distinctive yellow envelopes. Coordinates, 
symbols, possible places that Bobby could be. Every year, X demanded something else of Laura's in exchange for these clues, usually something that she had used or something to do with her body. A lock of her hair, her favorite shirt, a piece of paper with a lipstick kiss on it, even a soiled sanitary pad. She gave him these things wearily, having been conditioned to obey, thinking with every letter that she would go to the police, and then telling herself that doing so would jeopardize the only real connection she still had with Bobby. So each year she parceled everything her secret admirer wanted up in plastic bags, tucking these tokens into the space behind the tree in the terracotta pot by her front door. And each year, X sent her a new set of coordinates in return for her offering. Something for something, he'd said. She learned to approach everything else in life this way. Quid pro quo. I'll do this if you do that. It stretched her already fraught relationship with her mother to something papery, thin, and brittle. She would only obey instructions if she was first given something to make the sacrifice seem worthwhile. Not because she was particularly defiant, but because she had learned from X that life was often a simple game of, you have something I want. And so, even the smallest of daily tasks became a negotiation. So, Daddy and I were talking, Laura, and we think it's about time you started, you know, trying to get back to normal. Normal? I think what your mother means is, it's not good for you to spend so much time in the house, closeted away in your bedroom. You should try and get out more. Meet people. See friends. Might make you feel better. I don't have any friends, Dad. I don't need any friends. I don't need you to worry about me. I mean, it's not like you worried before, so why start now? I don't appreciate your tone, Laura. Of course Daddy and I worry. We care about you. We love you. We don't want you to turn into a, um... What? A loser? Might be too late for that, Mom. You're not a loser, Laura. You've just been through something really bad. But you can't let it define you, sweetie. You have to try and rise above it. Live your life despite it. Bobby would want that. What the fuck would you know about it, Dad? Really? What do you know about living your life? You spend your entire existence working and ignoring your family. Laura, that isn't fair. You know I... How do you know what Bobby would want? You didn't know him. Not like I did. And you're sitting here talking like he's gone forever. He could still be alive, you know. He... could. I know where Bobby is. Bobby is dead. Laura... It is not acceptable to talk to your father like that. I won't- And you're just as bad. The pair of you hardly knew I existed until Bobby went missing. You're not living your lives. You just go through the motions. You don't even like each other that much. I know you're hurting, Laura, but lashing out at us won't solve anything. And besides, there are other things you need to be doing now that you're older. You need to be helping out around the house more than you do. Your mother needs help with the laundry cleaning, that kind of thing. We all have to live here, Laura. We all have to contribute to the family. Fine. What? I said fine. I'll start doing the housework if you teach me to drive. Now wait a moment, young lady. You don't get to dictate to us any terms. You don't get to bargain, you understand? 
You just have to start pulling your weight. We all do. You just said you wanted me to leave the house more. If I could drive, I would. What makes you think I want to go out there without the safety of my own car? Maybe if Bobby had had his own car, he would still be here. And we wouldn't be having this argument. Yeah. So I'll do all the cooking and cleaning you want. If you teach me to drive. Deal? The statement dropped into the silence between Laura's parents like a concrete weight. And they looked at each other, knowing better than to continue arguing. Instead, they gave Laura what she wanted, and she was driving before the year was out. Her behavior in all other respects was also faultless. She never acted out, or drank, or partied. Laura kept herself to herself, and gave nothing to anyone without first accepting payment. It broke her mother's heart, but by the time Laura was 18 years old, the damage was done. And Mrs. Scott didn't know how to go back in time and repair the cracks in her child. She considered herself lucky that Laura hadn't given into drugs or gone off with an unsuitable boyfriend. And all the time, Laura kept wrapping little intimate parts of herself up in plastic and leaving them outside her front door, like donations to some perverted god. As the latitude and longitude codes came in year after year, each one written on the back of map scraps that she cross-referenced with her father's collection, she marked them down and went on excursions. The excursions always ended in failure. Each time she ended up somewhere innocuous and not remotely momentous, at a spot where Bobby couldn't possibly be buried, the very middle of a busy road, or next to an abandoned phone booth, or in a random parking lot. Once, she even stood dead in the middle of a frozen food aisle in an old supermarket, not far from the edges of the old forest, map in hand, foolishly staring at the rows of cabinets stocked with ice cream and frigid chopped vegetables. Shoppers gave her a wide berth, eyeing her nervously. But she had learned long ago to avoid the judging eyes of others, and instead created her own sad little bubble of stillness in the aisle, around which everyone else flowed like water flowing around a stone. After that excursion, something changed inside of her. The fragile hope she'd nurtured that this was all leading somewhere began to sour and curdle. She began to ask herself difficult questions as she lay awake in bed at night, staring at her hands in the gloom, numbers trickling past her wide-open eyes like drops of rain down a window pane. Questions she didn't know how to ask herself when she was 13. Was the man who wrote the letters really the same man that had driven away with Bobby? Did she actually believe that the end result of this sordid letter-writing campaign would lead her to the remains of her dead best friend? Or had she pushed herself to believe it, so that she could make peace with her own complicity? And whether or not they were the same person, who was the man in the blue van, really? Why had Bobby been talking to him? Did Bobby know him from somewhere already? Was Bobby's awkwardness with her the day he went missing related somehow? He had tried to tell her something that day, and she had laughed at him, teased him. Was he going to tell her about the man in the van? They didn't look like complete strangers to each other, if she thought about it. Or maybe they were. Bobby had been easy and confident with most people, both strangers and people he knew. He was an outgoing type of person. Laura let her mind replay that journey to the bus stop over and over again. He had only kissed her once, that day, 
and shown no signs of wanting to repeat the kiss. Was that because he had felt shy, like she had? Or was it something else? Was it because... Had he discovered that kissing girls was not for him after all? Did he prefer kissing men? Older men? She remembered him leaning into the car, laughing. She remembered how he hid his face behind his hair when he climbed into the van. Had he been ashamed? Embarrassed? Had Bobby been taken? Or had he, in fact, run away? And if so, why had Bobby chosen the man in the van over her? They had known each other since Laura was a baby. They were best friends. They loved each other. What could be stronger than that? Wasn't love supposed to be stronger than anything else? Other questions began to plague the restless hours she spent trying and failing to sleep at night. Could she take the letters to the police now, all these years later? What would they think of her when she told them about the underwear, the sanitary pad? What would they be able to do about them realistically? She knew little of DNA, but she knew something of evidence. What evidence was there, really, in the letters? Evidence to prove that Bobby was actually dead. Evidence to prove definitively that her mysterious pen pal really knew where Bobby's body was. Simple. There was none. All she ever got were demands. All she ever got were map coordinates. The man was a crackpot, and she was indulging him. She was a willing participant in an elaborate prank. The police would never take her seriously. The letters would be lost, filed away in a box folder in a storage room somewhere, and she would lose her only slim chance of finding a resolution if by some miracle the letters were authentic. But, a little voice warned periodically, but it might not be a hoax. Her writer friend might be crazy, might be a pervert, but he might also be telling the truth. She might not have debased herself for nothing. Maybe she was building trust, like an undercover agent, or mole. And at the end of the process, there would be answers for everyone who once loved Bobby and still loved Bobby, herself included. And she couldn't risk throwing that away, no matter how improbable it seemed. Laura grew older, and the questions remained unanswered. The curdled sour milk abscess in her core split open, and the tough outer skin peeled back, flooded her system with bile and a thick, slow anger. She swallowed it down and retreated further into herself, aware that the people around her in life did not have the very first clue as to how to talk to her about what she was experiencing. And the memory of Bobby drifted further and further away. Eventually, as she approached her 19th year, fatigue won out. Laura decided she didn't want to play X's game anymore. She decided to cut ties with everything that defined and imprisoned her and leave home. Bobby wasn't coming back. That much was obvious now. And she had finally, finally grown weary of the game, especially after the supermarket prank. Age had given her some resilience when it came to accepting that Bobby was gone for good, and she no longer felt the loss as keenly as she had when she was 13. It colored her life in dull shades, but didn't blind her completely to the other opportunities that were out there for her, if she could just move on. And so move on she did. Or at least, she tried to. Before Laura left home early on the morning of her 19th birthday, 
She woke with the dawn deliberately. She wanted to be up and about before X had time to slip his noxious little envelope under the door. She sat at her small desk in her childhood bedroom and wrote her own letter on pristine white notepaper, then left it wrapped in a plastic carrier bag behind the bay tree. It was short and to the point. Dear X, who the fuck are you anyway? Why are you doing this to me? You don't know where Bobby is at all. I think you're a pathetic, dirty old man who is sick in the head. You are disgusting. I don't want to play anymore. Leave me alone. L. Having committed this small, revolutionary act, she used it as fuel to find a place of her own, and find one she did. That very day, a small studio apartment at the center of town, above a laundromat. It was pokey and damp in places, but she could afford to pay the deposit and first month's rent with her meager savings, and affordability was the main criteria. And just like that, Laura flew the nest. She got a job in a grocery store stacking shelves in the dead of night. Even, in time, found herself a new boyfriend. Although their relationship was extremely loose and casual because Laura didn't know how to trust and certainly didn't know how to let anyone close to her. Regardless, life became less jagged around the edges. She walked with a straighter back, and her face became softer, more open. Friends soon followed. Friends who took her on shopping excursions and sat on lunch breaks with her in the sun, reading magazines and smoking cigarettes and doing normal, everyday things. Things Laura had denied herself for years, so preoccupied as she'd been with finding Bobby. Laura hadn't made any friends in school after Bobby left, and the extended loneliness she'd experienced made her grateful for every new relationship she now forged. She even made some inroads with her mother, inviting her over for a meal a time or two, although never her father. That road was potholed beyond repair after he had taught her how to drive. Life improved, and she was allowed to live like this for 12 months. During that time, she convinced herself that X had taken the hint, given up, moved on. Perhaps she'd scared him away with her own letter. Perhaps it had been a wake-up call. She was on to him. Perhaps he had grown equally as tired of the game as she had. A beautiful silence reigned, and breathing became easier every day that passed. Her birthday approached, and she thought, finally, that this one might come and go with no yellow envelope. Laura allowed herself to feel a little triumph. I won. All I had to do was stop playing. But she was wrong. Twelve months. Another year traveling around the sun. Laura woke up on her birthday and found exactly what she'd hoped for. No yellow envelope. Heart singing, she went to work later that afternoon ate the cheap sponge cake her colleagues had bought to mark the occasion. Her shift passed quickly, and she returned home at four in the morning, looking forward to a good sleep, looking forward to the rest of her life, until she found her bathroom window shattered and glass all over the floor. Lying amongst the splinters and shards of glass, Laura found a brick. Attached to the brick with tape was an envelope, same yellowish paper, same slanted, angry writing. Presumably, the same word vomit on the same cruel, malignant subject matter. How had he found her? 
She stared at the mess in silence, then boarded up the broken window as best she could with a sheet of cardboard and went to bed, leaving the envelope where it was, taped to the brick on the floor. Her dreams were dark and endless. When she woke, she thought about throwing the letter away unread, or better still, burning it. But she didn't. Whether from guilt at her short-lived happiness and peace, or addiction, or from being conditioned over the years to receive X's attentions, regardless, she found herself sitting on the closed lid of her toilet, fingers sliding beneath the grubby, saliva-rippled envelope flap. And inside, there was no letter, only a photograph. No two photographs. The first was of Bobby. Of course it was. Fresh-faced, wearing the clothes he'd been wearing the day he disappeared. His hair in long blonde curtains was tucked back behind his ears, a style she'd never seen on him before. He was smiling hesitantly into the camera, although she thought the smile looked brittle, forced. He had his arm around someone, an older man, a large man with huge shoulders and a dark blue t-shirt. A man she presumed was X. She couldn't see his face because he had cut it out of the photo, leaving behind a precise little hole through which she could poke her index finger. On the bottom right of the photo, a digital readout was stamped in orange type, the time and date it was taken. The same day that Bobby had disappeared. Five hours, in fact, after she'd seen him drive off in the van. She slipped the second photo out from behind the first with her thumb and screamed. In this photograph, Bobby wasn't smiling anymore. His eyes were rolled back in his head, unseeing, and the rest was all red. Red. So much red. Laura stared and stared until she could take it no more. Her hands shook she gently laid the photograph on the bathroom floor and hung her head between her knees, trembling. This was the proof that she had been lacking. Her brain ticked over like a heated engine, straining to work through the implications of this image, and several things swam to her, slowly, through the chaos within. X knew where she lived, which meant he was still following her, still stalking her. He hadn't grown bored of the game. He hadn't given up. And this... This picture was evidence. And Bobby was dead. Really, truly, without a doubt, dead. X did know where the body was. The letters were, after all, confessions and not just crazy ramblings. Laura felt her stomach cramp, feeling something hot surge up from inside. She kicked the photos to one side and vomited onto the bathroom floor. The sickness was a replacement for tears. Instead of crying, she evacuated her stomach and then panicked cursing herself for almost destroying the only piece of evidence she had proving Bobby's fate. On autopilot now, she carefully retrieved the pictures and checked to see if they were damaged whilst trying not to look too closely at the images within. Then she wiped her face and made her way unsteadily to her bedroom, where she raided her drawers for all the other letters from X that she'd kept over the years. Despite everything, she'd never been able to bring herself to throw them away feeling somehow that the letters were an unpleasant but vital part of her, and not something she could dispose of lightly. She collected them into a bundle, stuffed everything into a backpack, and slung it over one shoulder, jammed her shoes onto her feet, and started walking to the police station. The whole way there, 
All she could see was red. I made a mistake. Poppy is dead. I made a mistake. I should have gone to the police. What if he's killed other people? This is all my fault. She agonized over how she hadn't taken the letters to the police out of fear. Fear that she wouldn't be believed. Fear that she'd been tricked. So much time wasted. And here she was, years later, with a definitive, unspeakable answer to the question of what had happened to Bobby. Answers for Mr. and Mrs. Evelyn. How much more would they hate her now? When they discovered what had happened to their darling boy. When they found out she had been hiding the key to his case all this time. More than they already did. Was that even possible? Oh, Poppy. So much shred in your hair. She was only two streets away from the station when she heard heavy footsteps running close behind her. She turned, but too late. A huge hand clamped over her eyes. Her feet were kicked out from beneath her. She fell to the ground and knew suddenly what was happening. She'd been followed by X. The hand over her eyes disappeared. Her backpack containing the letters and photos was ripped from her shoulder. A tall, dark presence loomed over her. As she blinked, trying to focus on him, the hand reappeared once again. Only this time, it was a fist. And it hit her squarely in the center of her nose. The heavy feet thumped away. The man, his fist, her bag, the letters and the photos were all gone. The evidence had been confiscated. Laura had broken the rules of the game. No police. She was helped to her feet by a small crowd of passersby. Several of them offered to come with her to the police to report the attack. She shook her head, squirming awkwardly out from beneath the grip of their anxious, hot hands. Blood dripped out of her nose and splattered onto the pavement, concerned faces pushing in all around her. She broke through the onlookers, swearing, and hobbled home, keeping her head back and pinching her nose to stem the blood flow. People called out behind her. She picked up her pace and ran, away from the voices, away from her blood on the pavement, away from her shame. When she got back to her apartment, she carefully stuffed a tampon up each nostril, watching her reflection in a small handheld mirror as two black eyes bloomed in her swollen face. A day later, before she could get her landlord to fix the broken window in her bathroom, her letters and her backpack were returned. Not left outside her door. Not this time. No, he left the bag at the foot of her bed, with a note while she slept. She found it upon waking, felt the weight of it by her feet, and made a horrified noise when she realized he had been here, in her room, mere inches away from her sleeping body. As expected, the photographs were gone. Why he had taken those and left the letters, she didn't know. It didn't matter anyway. The evidence was gone. Bobby was dead. X knew where she lived. Her time of respite had been a lie. Nothing had changed since she was 13. X was still playing the game, whether she liked it or not. The note read, No police. Yours with respect, X.
Dear Laura was written and adapted for audio by Gemma Amore. Produced for the No Sleep Podcast by Phil Mykolski. Musical score composed by Brandon Boone. Starring Kristen DiMercurio as the narrator. Mary Murphy as Laura. Nicole Doolin as Mrs. Scott. Graham Rowett as Mr. Scott. And David Cummings as X. Join us next week for Chapter 5 of Dear Laura. This audio production is copyright 2021 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyright for Dear Laura is held by Gemma Amor. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.